0: As speech pathologists, we we do really get it. We understand the importance of communication and and social connections. And it's important to learn that how one way of treating or or working with a, a client isn't necessarily going to be what works for another client in a different state or from a different tribe. If we've got assessment findings that are robust, then we don't have to make any presumptions And I strongly believe in the value and worth of what we do and the difference we make.
1: Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature a conversation about an area or topic related to all things speech pathology. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say.
0: Hi, it's Annika. Welcome to this week's Speak Up conversation. I think if we are all brutally honest, we all have a clinical presentation that provides a small sense of dread. For me, it's a lateral S, especially in school-age kids. It's just so difficult to shift, particularly in conversation. I am beyond thrilled and grateful to have Amy Graham join me all the way from Colorado, USA today. Amy is a speech-language pathologist with over 20 years of experience working in a range of clinical settings. She is the owner of Graham Speech Therapy and has a keen interest in working with children with speech sound disorders, including those with a lateral S. Amy is the co-author of the Bajoram Speech Sound Cues Deck for Lateralization and is passionate about supporting speech pathologists with practical therapy tips and materials for working with children with a speech sound disorder. Thank you so much for chatting with me today, Amy.
1: I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: I've been really looking forward to this deep dive into my friend, the lateral S, but to (laughs) start, I thought it might be really interesting. I was reading your blog and I noticed that um, a family member's lateral S actually inspired you to become a speech pathologist in the first place. And I'm so interested to hear that
1: story. Yeah, my little sister, um, she's about three years younger than I am. When she was in preschool, she had basically a phonological disorder, so or a delay, really. It was just she had a lot of phonological errors that were going on. So she had months and months and months of speech therapy. And so I remember being little, thinking that that looked like a really fun job. You get to play with kids and teach them sounds. Um, and so that's how I kind of got into the profession. But after even through months of therapy, I even think maybe a couple of years of therapy, really, she still had a residual lateral distortion. And hers was not on S, it was on CH and SH, um, and those voiced cognates as well, too. And so um, she actually had that on until she was really an adult um, through college. And I I saw really firsthand how it really was impacting her. Because I think sometimes you think, oh, that's such a a minor thing. It's just a minor, mild speech error, no big deal. But she was so good at circumlocuting and avoiding words and thinking of other words just to avoid producing this sound because she was so self-conscious about it. Um, And so I I just remember, I kind of took that to heart when I was in graduate school and um, when I got out of grad school, I, I don't even remember if I was in grad school or just newly graduated, um, but she asked me if I could help her fix this lisp because she was so self conscious about it. Um, and so that got me thinking about tongue placement and, well, what does our tongue do to make this S sound or this SH or CH? And that's kind of how I got kind of started into it. And so based on that, I literally, I know it's kind of a weird story, but I would say, I always said 10 minutes. I taught her how to do it. She'll tell me it was like three minutes. (laughs) And I just literally explained what her tongue should be doing um, and what it was doing, which was incorrect. And then I explained what it had to do. And then she just said, oh, really? That's That's it? And then she never... And she's unusual, but she was so self-conscious about it that she was. It was easier for her to kind of really be be conscious when in her spontaneous speech and correct it in her, you know, spontaneous speech fairly easily. But I'd never heard her lisp again after that day.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness! I wish I had that magic wand. <laughs> I, know.
1: I wish I had the magic wand too. I want to say it was my sister. Like she really <laughs> took it to her heart and really, really um, applied what I taught her. Yeah, I'm wondering if you,
0: just to clarify, I suppose, could maybe go over what actually does happen anatomically when someone's producing a lateral S?
1: Well, I think what is probably the most helpful is to understand what it should be doing in order to produce a non-lateralized S. Um, And when we say and when I say lateral, I typically mean like any kind of distortion because there's palatal lisps and frontal lisp. There's a lot of different kinds of dis- ways to distort um, those fricative sounds or those affricate sounds based on incorrect tongue placement. Um, so if you understand what it's supposed to do, which really is... The secret behind all of what, you know, to eliminate a a lateralized distortion is those lateral borders of the tongue have to be anchored up against those inside molars or the inside of the teeth or the palate, really, so that the airflow is directed medially down the center of the tongue. And so... If you have a palatal lisp, a lateral lisp, whatever kind of distortion, that isn't happening. So there's something... I've even seen kids with what I would call a unilateral lisp, like maybe one side of their tongue is touching and the other side drops out. I mean, there are some funky... Wow, iterations. that's fancy. <laughs> yeah, there are some <laughs> really interesting distortions, but they all sound... Um, They all have that slushy sound. And when I hear somebody like an SLP or a parent say slushy, that's my first red flag. Like, oh, is it a lateral? Is that what we're doing here? And so I think that's the secret. Sometimes with like palatals and even laterals, it's that that air is just escaping over the sides of the tongue. And so we have to figure out a way to help them anchor those sides of the tongue up and um, against those teeth and that, you know, towards that palate area.
0: Amy, is there anything known about the prevalence of lateralization? I haven't come across any data about that, but I'm just wondering from your side of things, have you come across anything in regards to prevalence?
1: You know, there's a couple things that I recall reading. I think um, a McLeod article in 2013, and then there's another article in the 90s, I believe, from Smith uh, and colleagues. But I, I. from what i recall it's somewhere between 5 and 15%. so you know it's it's significant enough that if you're an slp if you're a pediatric slp you are going to have kids with a lateral lisp and if even if you work with adults you may have an adult come to you at some point and say you know i want to fix this how can i how can i correct it
0: mm, so it's quite a lot isn't it yeah. so we all know that lateral S is not an error that a child's going to outgrow. I think we all know that, but I would love your thoughts on the best age to actually intervene. It is a question that goes through my mind sometimes, particularly when I have little preschoolers um, that present with a range of phonological disorders as well. Um, I'm just wondering in your experience, what is the best age to intervene?
1: It's a hard question to answer because I think it's individual. Um, we know that because it is not a developmental error, it's not something that we're going to wait for someone to outgrow. But if you have, like you said, if you have a preschooler on your caseload who also has these other phonological error patterns that's really reducing their intelligibility, we may need to focus on that first because we know that if we're using, you know, appropriate phonological interventions, that can be remediated fairly quickly, right? I always say like phonology over articulation. Um, so I, I like to think of correcting what is or addressing what is impacting intelligibility the most first. So that's that tends to be where I gravitate. But if you have maybe a four year old who all they have is a lateral lisp, right? They're probably pretty intelligible. But I would still try to I, I would try to immediately <laughs> correct or um, intervene and, and provide intervention for that child in order to help them eliminate that because since it is not developmental the less they have in their lifetime to habituate that production the better so I want to kind of hit mm-hmm. the butt if we can and but the problem is that I you know that I have found is obviously how do you teach a three-year-old or a four-year-old where their tongue goes exactly <laughs> right? that's right it's
0: such it's a so- difficult Yeah, skill for them to get their head around, and they're also not motivated to change it at that point.
1: Exactly, they don't care. They don't think they don't, and many of them don't even know that they sound any different. They have no idea. Um, That comes later as they get a little bit older. But then, if sometimes it can be easier if you wait, you know, maybe to till they're seven, eight, nine. But then, my gut, my goodness, they've already spent more years habituating that incorrect production, so. This is part of the reason um, that I developed the Bjorm speech sound cues for lateralization, because they have picture cues to represent specific phonetic contexts to help elicit these sounds. And they kind of create this cognitive reframing to where we're not trying to fix this sound, which is really hard to to get a child to a three-year-old, a four-year-old to fix a sound. Like, no, you need to put your tongue here elevate the sides, you can't do that. But if you can use the phonetic context of a sound that they can produce correctly and shape this new sound that is non-lateralized, and I even call it that, we call it a new sound. We're not going to work on S, we're going to make a new sound altogether. And that I have had great success with my kids. I would love for some researcher to do a study on it, because there is not a lot of... Um, published data regarding treatment of lateral lisps. There's a lot of people with tips like me, but I would love for a researcher, if there's anybody out there <laughs> that wants to do a study, I would love it. Because I think there's um, some really, really fascinating things when we try this idea of cognitive reframing um, for kids, learning a non-distorted version of a sound.
0: Mm, I'm so glad you mentioned your cards. I love them and I have, or I guess anecdotally, had some success with them. I'm just wondering, is it okay to sort of very broadly run over some of the steps that are involved in actually using your cards from, I guess, that sound level where you, you start um, up to word level? Uh, where I honestly get stuck is sentence level and conversation level. And I would just love your thoughts on the intervention approach that you use across all those levels.
1: Absolutely. So I usually start with, now again, this kind of varies depending on the child and how many sounds they're lateralizing, but there are some, um, I would say some considerations that are pretty much broad across the board. Um, One, I always start with voiceless sounds. Um, And really, that goes back to also to the research and what we know about complexity theory. And um, the fact that if we consider marked versus non-marked, or I'm just kind of getting into the weeds a little bit, or unmarked. um, But if basically, if a language has voiceless sounds, it will also have voiced. So that the idea is if you treat voiceless sounds, it will also carry over to voiced sounds without having to directly treat it as well. Um, But I found that to be the case with my kids. So if I to focus on just the voiceless it I can't even remember the last time I've actually had to address the voiced cognate so if I address ch um it almost always transfers to j without ever without having to do that um, or address it. yeah so and the same thing with s and z I almost never address z I'm always addressing s and it carries over it generalizes most of the time um, one of the other things that as far as guidelines go um when I'm thinking about eliciting is I think about what sound specifically can that child say correctly that is similar in placement to an S or an SH or a CH. And remember, if we're trying to anchor those lateral borders of the tongue, probably the easiest way, and this is what the deck of my deck is based on is the T sound, but we have to make sure that they can do a good T sound because some kids can't. And I've noticed that many kids who cannot really get a good crisp tea with those lateral borders of the tongue, there are other underlying issues going on, um, i.e. myofunctional deficits sometimes. If got a tongue thrust, if their tongue is always low at rest in their mouth, if they're you know kind of messy eaters, like there's something going on with the way that they're moving their tongue or they have their tongue in their mouth at rest that is... Kind of prohibiting them from getting good placement for certain sounds, um, and sometimes I see that with T as well. So, but if they a child can do the T sound, and I'll even have when I present on this topic, I'll have people like just do the T sound a bunch of times. Tell me what do you feel, T-t-t-t. and if you feel those sides of your tongue just really anchored there and you you don't have to use your jaw your jaw is really still and it's really only your tongue that's working then i can build from that and so all we have to do is make that t sound and then we just hold it out tss. and that creates what we call the our, our new sound is the flat tire sound and so that's how i get my kids to elicit it now sometimes they do that really easily and it's simple sometimes they go tss, 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 and they mm-hmm. go right back yes. to <laughs> what do. You- do then i have had this many times yes and it happens to me every time and it's because it's this idea of cognitive reframing where i have to remind them that we are not trying to say s here i'm teaching you a new sound that you've never done before so you have to get this idea of the s sound out of your mind and so sometimes i have to remind them 10 times 100 times (laughs) many times um and we can talk about that when we get into the word level too um but they're trying they think you know, even though I tell them, oh, we're, we're not doing S, they're like, yeah, lady, whatever. I know you're, we're, we're working on the S. <laughs> yeah. I, I get it. You're not going to trick me. But I have to, I do remind them like, I, really, if I hear the S sound, we're just going to stop because that's not what we're doing. We're doing this T sound and you're holding it out. And that's making this new flat tire sound, because it sounds like a whole, you know, a pin pricking the tire or you nail know, pricking the air escaping. And so that visual for the little kids, in fact, it's a, it's funny because the littler ones, this is so much easier for them to do than some of my older ones who think they're mm. outsmarting me by trying. To say yes. <laughs> so my little ones actually progress so much faster this way, which is good because I, you know, I want to get the little ones right. I want to get them mm. to be able to remediate their laterals.
0: And we know those older kids, it's much harder. And you get it's stuck harder. at these levels so for so it much is. longer. And there's such a high level of patience required from our end um, it's so true. to persist through some of those levels, definitely. All right. So then we move on to, um, I, well, I know that I've used your fantastic boom cards and your... Um, the cards in the pack. But I know that you then get to placing that sound at the end of words and then trying to stretch that sound out. Do you have any tips at that level? Because I do find some kids do regress a little bit once they get to that level.
1: I think one of the biggest tips is staying at each step for longer than you probably think. Because if we think about this being a phonetic error, this is a motorically based error. This is not phonology where you, you teach it once and you're like, oh, the kid's kind of catching on pretty quickly. Since this is a motor based error, we need to habituate this new motor plan, new new motor you know, programming of this new way that we're producing this sound. So we have to get a lot more practice. Um, and we have to even think about how we're practicing. And this, if this sounds familiar to anybody who's ever worked with kids with apraxia, it's because it is. I use the same principles when we practice uh, our targets. I use principles of motor learning, and that's a, that's a, a, probably a topic for a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. It's basically the way that you practice and how f- the frequency with which you practice you know, randomizing the, how you practice the amount of feedback you give and those kinds of things. But, um, I have found that once they can do it at the end of a word, and that's also, that's when they start to go back to the S, right? If you show them a picture of two cats and you say, this is cats, they go catch. And then again, I'm reminding them. Oh, but we're going to take off that old S sound and we're going to replace it with that new flat tire sound. That's the sound I want you to put at the end of the word then they can get that. They have it. Great. Then you try to put S at the beginning of the word and it falls apart again. Right. It's just hard. Like, or they need that T sound as kind t- of a attached quick. to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Like I have to have the T sound in order to get the S. So my little detour that I tend to make with those kids is I try to get S in isolation. And the way that I do that is we still start from the T. We have that little tick tock visual of t. we hold it out But then as we hold it out to make the flat tire sound, that's where we have to actually hold it out quite literally and see how long we can hold it out. And if they can actually um, keep their tongue, like stabilize their tongue in that spot, that's where some kids have trouble doing that. And they have trouble keeping their tongue in that spot. So we'll hold it out and we'll see how long can you hold it out? Five seconds. I can hold it out 10 seconds. And we kind of play a game and sometimes it's two or three or four sessions of just that. I want to see if they can hold out that flat tire sound for a long period of time, just so that they can you know, make sure that they stabilize their tongue. They're getting that proprioceptive, that sensory feedback of where their tongue is, what it sounds like. And that really kind of helps bridge the gap. And then when they can do that, we just practice turning our breath on and off. So if you think about it, if you go tss, tss and you're just freezing your tongue in that spot and you're turning your breath on and off, that is how you've achieved basically producing a non-lateralized S in isolation. And so I kind of back up and I kind of stay there for a while for kids who have trouble transferring In the new non-lateralized sound into new word positions, if that makes Mm. sense. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And then you're, I guess, attaching that to the start of a word. Would you then be, yeah, connecting it to a word,
1: yeah. Visual, and like I said, it's like my, even my little ones have a better, like an easier time doing this sometimes because they haven't so habituated this lateralized production. But yeah, then we have words, simple, monosyllabic words like sad, sick, salt, you know, just different words that have S and we practice holding it out and moving slowly into the rest of the word. And then, you know, as we practice and we get good at it, it gets faster, but that is kind of, that's what kind of helps them bridge into that, being able to produce it in initial position without the T sound for one, and then without lateralizing it.
0: And then I guess you're moving on to placing those words in sentences are we sort of following that traditional hierarchy or do you have other ways of moving from
1: that word level? Yeah, I actually do not follow that traditional hierarchy for these kids. What I tend to do is I don't move to anything beyond word level until we can do it in all positions of the word. So every position, medially, I'll even do multisyllabic words with multiple S's in them because if you think about it, what I, at least in my opinion, What we're trying to relearn is the motoric production of the sound. So if we have this one word that we've mastered and we're putting it into any sentence, we're still only getting that one practice of Yes. So I would rather do a word list. And this is what I have done with my kids. Again, I'm going to go back to principles of motor learning. And if anybody wants to know what that means, I do have an Instagram account and I have a whole highlight where I just explain all these terms and what they mean in terms of articulation intervention. Um, but what I do is we practice word lists and we practice them with, um, I, I ask them, it's a big ask, but I ask for daily home practice, but in short bursts. And I'll say maybe just one minute, but two times a day, or then two minutes, two times a day, or two minutes, three times a day. Like, what can you do? But some of my parents are motivated because they want to get their kid out of therapy, and my older kids are really motivated because they want to get out of therapy. They're so sick of coming and working yeah. on this. <laughs> yeah. they're like, sure, whatever. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's get done this. Yeah. Because I have found when you go to that traditional phrase level, sentence level reading passage, then spontaneous speech hierarchy, when in terms of practice, you have to rely on remembering to use that sound. Which is so much harder for kids than if we actually create this new habit of producing this Mm. sound. So it's almost like we're creating this habit of I want, I'm gonna give them a word list and there's S in all the positions of words and I want you to say it quickly and rapidly, but it has to be accurate. So sick, silly, suit, case, uh, case, hats. And I just have this random list of words once they've mastered all those positions and they have to practice that quickly and accurately. But it's only like I said, it's only it's every day, but it's maybe once or twice, but Mm. for a minute or two. And it's much easier because what I've found is kids will generalize at the word level. They will generalize into spontaneous speech without ever having to Mm. really address it in sentences and reading passages. And let's think about it as we talk for the next 10 minutes. I don't actually have to. Most of the time, there's always exceptions, but most of the time I don't have to do that. And this to me I'm, I'm kind of relieving this child of, you don't have to think about using your sound all the time because you're going to so habituate it. It's going to be like a new habit for you that you're not going to have to think about it. I don't want you to have to think about mm-hmm. using your sound. Mm-hmm. I, want <laughs> day, <right? laughs> yeah. I want it to come naturally right? That's the principles of motor learning, right? We're learning a new motor task because as you're learning to walk, you don't, I don't have to think about how I walk right now. It's, it's so, you know, we've been doing it for so long. I, you just get up and you walk. And that's how I want this new production of this sound to be for the kids. And that's how those principles of motor learning help with that. Mm, How interesting.
0: How long in your experience do you find intervention goes for? And I'm wondering too, whether that is based on age um, a little bit, but what, what would you say, how, how long are kids um, receiving intervention before you feel that they're at a point where they don't need that support any longer?
1: I would say it's so different. There's so many variables. I mean, I think most SLPs know that so, so much of it depends on the individual child, the family support at home. Like if they're not going to have any practice at home, it's going to take longer. Um, And I'll tell my parents that I'm in private practice. So I have families that are motivated, but I've worked in the schools where I never got to chat with the parents. And so those kids took longer. Um, And then it also depends on the motivation of the child. I will say I've had older kids who really don't care. And so, okay, then that's fine. That's great. If you're good with it, I'm good with it. And then we have to, you know, if you ever wanna come back, we can absolutely address it later. Um, But I would say the younger, my younger ones, Generalize it incredibly quickly. So I've had my preschoolers like when I use this kind of method with those cards and the visual cues. Um, I would say within I've had some as as quickly as two or three months generalize it to spontaneous speech. Some take a little bit longer, maybe six months. Um, my older kids, I would say on average, it kind of and again this so 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 much of this depends on the amount of practice that they do at home, their motivation. Um, but maybe a year, year and a half, two years, at the, I would say on the high side with some of my kids, maybe if they're not really practicing all the time, those word lists. Um, but it's not, this is not a lifetime. That's why I, I'm so, it makes me sad when, you know, I would fill in for SLPs when I was a contract worker in the schools in here in the States, we have SLPs in the school. I don't, I don't think you do that in Australia. I can't remember, but um, uh,
0: yeah, yeah, we have, we have speech pathologists okay. in schools. Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
1: Okay, good. Um, so I remember that when I would fill in, I would have um, these kids that were in seventh and eighth grade, and they've had the same goals for six years. I thought, if we've been working on S for six years, something's not working. Like, they, we need to figure something else out. And so those were the kids, too, that I would say, let's stop working on S let's just, let me teach you something new that you've never done before. And that's when we would start to make progress. So I think if it's taking, if you're not making any progress, that's a problem. Um, if you, if, if you're stalled, we need to figure out why, because there should always be some, even if it's little, you know, we're, we're all, maybe we can only do it at the beginning of words, but we're improving and, you know, that that's good. But if, the child is like, nothing is happening. Nothing's carrying over. You're not able to elicit it. It's time to try something new.
0: Mm. I'm really interested in what you said about home practice. I think in my head, I've always thought, oh, this is one um, articulation error where the more home practice, the better. But it was interesting to hear you say that even just um, a minute a day, a couple Mm -hmm. of times a day seems to be sufficient. Could you comment a bit more on that?
1: Yes, it does. It's this idea of Distributed practice versus massed practice, right? So, I think this is another principle of motor learning where when we're learning a new skill, we have to do it a whole bunch all at once and get a lot of practice all at once in really an intense period of time. And that's kind of what we do here in this speech session. But in order for that to carry over, we have to have this distributed practice that does not have to be so lengthy or, you know, a, a lot of practice all at once. I would rather, I know. Like piano teacher said, rather you practice for 10 minutes, you know, five days a week, than one hour all, of, all on one day. It's better to break it up. And I'll even find that my kids, if they just do it a minute, they can they kind of keep going. They're like, oh, I can do another minute. So that's nothing. It's no big deal. And so I would rather them do it a short period of time, multiple times a day, to get that distributed practice, which leads to generalization. Um, and it's it seems much less daunting to kids, too. Like, oh, so good, I don't, have to, yeah, I don't have to sit here for 20 minutes and practice. I'm all about it. <laughs> it. And takes pressure off families as well, oh, which I, I mean,
0: I find initially they are very motivated to complete home practice, but that wanes. And if we're talking about intervention lasting up to two years for some kids, That is definitely going to wane, so it definitely needs to be something more manageable. So, yeah, it's quite refreshing to hear you say that. That's um, an adequate amount of practice. That's really, really nice to
1: hear. I would love for some researchers. Yes, (laughs) I would love to compare it. Um, But that is what I found in my own, you know, clinical experience. That is what I have found. Yeah. Mm. So why do you
0: think? I'm so interested. Why do you think there's not as much research? On, in in the area of articulation disorders versus phonological disorders, and particularly CAS, which has a, quite a large evidence base, why right. do you think there's not so much in articulation?
1: You know, I I don't know. I know there's a lot, like Jonathan Preston out of Syracuse. I know they look a lot into our um, production, which I'm so grateful for because I think that has, that's a huge need still. Um, but these residual articulation errors, I'm not sure. Um, I don't I don't know if they're just not as um, I think we have a tendency, I will say this, to think that it's not that big of a deal, right? That mm-hmm. it's, you know, you, we can understand you. It's a lisp. It's a, you know, and, and so I think we have a tendency not to think that it's that big of a deal, but I think with my sister's experience, um, mm. seeing that it was a huge it deal. It is a big deal, yeah. Right? It was a huge deal. And so I don't know if that plays into it. I'm not exactly sure, um, but I would love to see more research, um, more research going into it for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes- mm-hmm. Um, like I've said before, with the whole idea of the myofunctional aspect of some of these kids have difficulties with the, you know, tongue thrust and the way that they use their tongue for feeding and eating and and we don't always cross over into the speech sound disorders field, which I think um it doesn't always crossover, but it can. And so I think sometimes when we're not making progress with our kids, we need to kind of step back and see what am I missing? And so I I think there's a lot of room for a lot of different researchers to look into a lot of different areas.
0: Yeah, he's hoping he's hoping it would be great to really make that evidence base a bit more robust. That's for sure. Now, I can't thank you enough, Amy, that has been just seriously the most fascinating deep dive into lateral S that I've ever had (laughs) it's always one of those topics that um you hear a little bit about or you might go to a pd on something to do with speech sound disorders and it's kind of brushed over a little bit so it's been really fascinating to to sort of deep dive into it um more than i have before so i can't thank you enough for sharing your expertise it's been fantastic
1: thank you i've been happy to be here thank you
0: and i'd highly recommend people do look into your um cards for lateralization. They are super helpful and they are also a set of boom cards too, which have been super helpful for me um, being trapped in lockdown for quite some time. They have saved me (laughs) many times over. So thank you for putting all the work um, into producing those resources. They are uh, much appreciated by us on the ground. So thanks for that, Amy.
1: Glad to hear it.
0: And thank you so much to everyone for listening. Uh, We will be back with another Speak Up conversation next Wednesday. Have a super week. Thanks again, Amy.
1: Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.